take a breath, and I'll stop and notice the space around you. This is what we call sense of place. I'm David Gouch. Cities are fluid. They change and adapt and are both dependent on the opinions of those who call the city home, but also in and of themselves become an incubator of cultural transformation. The city of Columbus, Ohio, it's the middle of the road type of city. It doesn't have a national cachet like a New York City, Chicago, or even Cleveland, it's neighbor to the north. But those who live in Columbus take great pride in their city. I should know, I was born there and lived in the suburb of Upper Arlington next to the Ohio State University. I love informing my friends in Los Angeles, where I live now, of the hidden wonders of Columbus, such as the edge-to-edge pizzas baked in a flaky crust and cut in small squares, which I believe rivals New York or Chicago-style pizza. Or I could talk about the many companies that started right in Columbus, like Wendy's, Buffalo Wild Wings, and the limited brand which owns Victoria's Secret, Abercrombie & Fitch, and Forever 21, to name a few. But maybe the most surprising of all is that Columbus is nationally recognized as one of the gay-friendliest cities in the U.S., with a gay pride parade that is second in size in the Midwest only to Chicago. Until recently, I had never looked into how a city in the middle of the Midwest state like Ohio could become such a great city for gays to live in. And as I dived into the history, I found a dramatic story of a group of gay activists who went from fags to the toast of the town in only two decades. The story starts in 1980, when Columbus was a much different city than the one I knew in the 2000s. Now young gay people, they don't have a clue about their own history. And that's both admirable and horrible at the exact same moment. And they look at Columbus and think, well, it's always been this way. And the answer is, no kids, it ain't. there was a defining decade that would set in motion what values the culture of Columbus would hold, it was the 1980s. Now the 80s in Columbus would serve as the battleground for two opposing groups who each had different ideas of what kind of city Columbus should be. The first, the gay activists, were seeking equal rights and public acceptance. How much talent has been wasted for hundreds of years up to today when gay and lesbian people are oppressed, when we're denied our rights and we're, we're kept in fear? How long do we have to suffer in this country? And the other group, the politically active conservative Christians, loosely known at the time as the moral majority. We've come down here to tell you that being a homosexual is wrong in the sight of God. They were interested in returning Columbus to a foundation of values based in biblical truth. These two groups would publicly face off in 1981 when Jerry Falwell, the leader of the Moral Majority Movement, came to Columbus in hopes of establishing a headquarters for his organization there. Now, Jerry Falwell was viewed as an enemy to the gay community, and so what was formerly a disparate group of gay activists gathered in protest for the first time. And while we had protesters there, we're not talking about mammoth protests. This wasn't the Stonewall riots. We had well, I don't know, 50 people. That's Douglas Whaley. My name is Douglas Whaley, W-H-A-L-E-Y, like the big fish with the Y on the end. Whaley's a professor emeritus at the Moritz College of Law at Ohio State University. Where I was a tenured member of the uh, faculty for, oh, 30 years. Whaley's expertise is commercial law, and he still teaches there from time to time. Outside of teaching, Whaley was also a gay activist in the Columbus, Ohio area back in the 1980s. I came here in 1976, and I came here to come out. 
And as I uh, got involved, I got more and more into involved with the gay community. Whaley is a great guide to lead us through the story as he is old enough to have witnessed the battle for gay rights and public acceptance in Columbus from the 1980s all the way to the present day. Okay, so back to 1981. Whaley and his group of activists were gathered in protest of Jerry Falswell's visit to Columbus. They stood outside the buildings where Falwell was having his organizational meetings. And one thing that often gets forgotten when talking about protests is there's a lot of downtime in between the actual protesting. We had hours. And so. And we got to talking. And, and they talked and continued to talk. And then ideas started flowing from those gathered. Finally, there was a moment where, hey, this would be a good time in Columbus to get an organization going. Why do you say we have a meeting kind of thing? And who do you know? And I know. And we'll get people at that meeting. This was the beginning of what would soon become Stonewall Union, which was later renamed Stonewall Columbus. I think that first meeting, it had 10, maybe 15 people, and that was it. But it was a start, and that's what the gay community needed. And the ironic thing in all of this is that Falwell's visit became the catalyst needed to finally unify the disparate gay activists at the time, yet the moral majority chapter never gained traction that Falwell had hoped for in Columbus. This was an important step for the gay community that until then had been on the marginalized fringe of Columbus. Now, Whaley, he moved to Columbus in 1976 when the gay community was difficult to find. I came to Columbus and I had no idea how to find the gay community. It was just, I mean, and in those days it was also hidden. And I mean, with the internet and everything, now it's easy, but in 1976 there was nothing like there that. Through trial and error of calling random bars throughout the city, Whaley discovered that gays didn't go out to bars until after midnight to avoid being beaten up in public. And this really was a major concern for the gay community at the time, for even hiding under the cloak of darkness, there were still instances of police coming into gay bars and roughing up the gay patrons. And there was also a high risk of being targeted on the street. It was very dangerous on the streets afterwards because homophobes thought, you know, gay drunks are pretty easy to roll and they're scum of the earth anyway, and some of them had money. My uh, partner of 12 years was coming out of a gay bar and was knocked down and robbed and beaten. Whaley made it through this dangerous time in Columbus's history, for the most part unscathed. Until this one time. He and his partner were walking from a gay bar to their car in an adjacent parking lot. And it was on, uh, like, the hilltop area. And there was a gang of teenagers. I walked around the cars and they came at me and the, uh, this one guy ran up and he kicked me right in the balls. Now, I should stop and mention that Whaley had actually just recently undergone surgery about a week before this for a ruptured appendix. And as the impact of the teenager's foot went into his groin, pain shot through his recovering body. I went down and my partner of the day uh, came running and he helped me into the car and then he tried to run them down with the car and I'm screaming, no, I'm a lawyer, you know, this would be manslaughter. And he's like, I don't care, I want to kill the fuckers and you know, and that, that kind of things. There was very little outlet for gays to meet, but now that Stonewall was formed, one of their first campaigns was to organize the first gay pride parade in Columbus in hopes of uniting the gay community and announcing their presence to the rest of Columbus. And this was again a clash between the moral majority and the gays. Stonewall Union, a gay community organization formed in response to the moral majority, sponsored today's event. The rally started at Goodale Park, where a small group of protesters came to ask the participants to change their ways. We've come down here today to let you know that being a lesbian is wrong. 
in the sight of God. We've come down here to tell you that being a homosexual is wrong in the sight of God. But the gays were not here seeking forgiveness. Rather, they are looking for dignity and equal rights. In the past few years, has the harassment of gays increased or decreased? In Columbus, it has gotten progressively better. In Columbus, we're one of the few cities in the United States to have uh, protection in housing and protection in public accommodations. And uh, what we're working on now is to get protection in job employment so that we can't be fired for being gay. The parade stepped down Park Street through the downtown area, ending at the state capitol. Now, in the late 70s, many gays came out of the closet, but the march today was also a show of support for those who fear coming out of the closet. There are still a lot of people who uh, are in the closet and who are afraid to come out. And these things like this, a parade like this, we're hoping will bring people together and realize that they can come out of the closet and be open about their feelings. The speakers at today's rally encouraged gays to be proud of themselves and to work through the political system to gain the things they want the most, respect and human rights. And we were afraid it was just going to be like 30 people, all Stonewall Union people. To their surprise, there were 825 people who marched on that first parade. Infamously, some of the participants in the parade wore bags over their heads because of the volatility in Columbus toward gays at the time. Craig Covey, one of the early members of Stonewall and one of the more vocal public-facing members, did not hide his or his partner's identity. And they faced the consequences. Well, Craig Covey and his partner, uh, Steve Wilson, uh, the night of the very first parade, their house got set on fire, their apartment building got set on fire. And there was a crowd out there chanting and uh, the firemen showed up and the, uh, the, the, they had to move, they, they were burned out. Over the next few years, the fledgling organization would almost call it quits many times over money problems, infighting, you name it, it happened. Despite these challenges, Doug and other lawyers in the organization began to speak with city council members about adding employment protection to Columbus's gay community. Private early talks with the council indicated it would pass by a vote of five to two. And then the public city council meeting was held. As expected, the gay community had a strong presence in the meeting, but it was nothing compared to the busloads of the moral majority who outnumbered the gays by two-thirds. Being a moderated city council meeting, both sides were allowed to present their arguments for and against the change in the city ordinance. Here's archival audio from this meeting, and we'll start with the voices of the opposition from the moral majority. Name is Tim Layfish, reside at Chase Avenue. They told us in college that we didn't start all of our sermons with a joke. And the joke is that I'm even here today. I can't believe that this great city of Columbus is actually considering the passage of such a bill of this nature. I have two reasons. I'll no doubt be redundant, but I'll try not to be of my preceding fellow uh, believers. First of all, I believe if we pass this issue, it's going to give Columbus a bad name. Who in the world wants Columbus to be known as the gay capital of the Midwest? It used to be that Columbus was the all-American town, mom, apple pie, and things of this nature. How dare, how dare we even think of putting such an ordinance 
into this effect here that would cause us to think any different. Number two, we believe if this issue passed, homosexuals from surrounding states will flood Columbus. They'll realize that they're protected by law, and they'll flood here, and they'll bring their AIDS disease with them. And we don't want one of the ministers got up and said, you don't bring lepers into God's clean people. You don't let a leper person in among clean people. You quarantine them. You keep them outside. You quarantine smallpox and herpes, AIDS, and these various diseases that have stemmed out of the homosexual community should not be forced to be placed among God's clean people. And then the crowds would get to chanting, and then the Bible would be slammed down on the lectern. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I have brought you the Word of God, and I have told you what it says, and in my opinion, and God's opinion, as I stand before you today, homosexuality is an unclean practice, as the Father God has said it, plain and simple, and they should not be forced to be hired in to be around our children to spread diseases that have no So that was the moral majority side, stating their opposition to the proposed city ordinance. As you can hear, this is a great example of what each side was fighting for. Biblical values versus equal protection for gays. Next is the counterarguments from Whaley and the other members of the Stonewall Union. I stood at the lectern and said, some city council is going to pass. Some council in Columbus is going to pass this ordinance. There will come a day when this will seem as silly a matter as, as discriminating against blacks or women. But uh, the question is, is this an act of political courage that this council can pull off? It will be very hard to do because you're going to face a group, you're going to support a group that is much discriminated against. But I like to think that the city of Columbus stands for the idea that you may not discriminate on the basis of job, on the basis of a sex partner, and that you can discriminate only on the basis of whether or not people are doing their job. As I watched this video, I can see how the crowd would ferociously cheer or jeer depending on who was speaking. And then the defining moment was when a Stonewall Union member, Rhonda Rivera, took to the lectern and made her final comments before inviting up a special guest. I actually am here in two persons tonight. My name is Rhonda Rivera. I live at 385 East Schreier. My profession is attorney and legal scholar. I cannot remember, although I'm a relatively well-known public speaker, when I have felt so deeply and cared so much, so you will excuse me. Over 54 cities in this nation already have this legislation. It's not that wild. One state has voted to protect gay people all over with regard to their employment rights. We have four executive orders in states around this country. There is no state law that protects people from discrimination in their employment. Our Constitution mandates equal protection of law for every citizen, regardless of whatever particular status they choose or comes to them. If you are a Jew or a Roman Catholic or an Episcopalian, it is not something you are born with. You, can't, you choose it. If you think homosexuality is chosen, it's no different. However, the study shows that we do not choose the lives that we are given by God, and therefore, we should have a right to be employed. Rhonda then ends her time at the podium early to invite her son up to speak. Her son was neither gay nor a part of the opposition, 
and for the first time, the room is entirely silent. Douglas said it was if you could hear a pin drop. The crowds listened in silence to hear what this child caught between the culture war for Columbus's soul would say. I would like to introduce to you my son, who is 17 years old and is about to graduate from a Columbus public school. He's going to finish my, my time. My name is Robert Rivera. Um, I go to Columbus Alternative High School. And uh, I guess one of the things that I'm really pleased with about Columbus is that I can go to a school where I feel happy. Columbus Alternative is a place where people can go when they don't feel quite right with the Columbus public school system as it stands now. People feel ostracized in schools, and ostracism is a tough thing to deal with. It makes people hurt. I've watched my mom for 17 years. <sighs> this hurts. What I'd like to say to you tonight is that we're all opening our hearts to you. And we're putting them on a silver platter so that you have two choices. You can cut it, or you can love it. That's all I can say. And everybody in the room, even the haters, began to tear up as, as he talked. And, and then came the vote. And remember, before the city council meeting, the council members had assured Doug and Stonewall that they would vote five to two in favor. And you watch the council members one by one change their mind. Including Republican Councilwoman Arlene Shoemaker, who earlier had assured Doug and Stonewall that she would vote for the ordinance. She informed those gathered in the meeting as to the reasons for her vote. Shoemaker, I'd like to take a minute and explain my vote. I also believe very strongly in the... And she makes an awful slip. She says, it's not well drafted. We do not have a queer ordinance, clear ordinance here. I cannot vote the way I'd like to vote, so I'm going to say no, because I believe we do not have a queer, clear-cut piece of legislation that will cause anything but unhappiness. That was then the out that some of the Democrats had, and the next thing you know, it went down in flames. And the cheering out of the, the homophobes in the crowd when it went down, and it all got out of hand. Rhonda had to be escorted out, to, out of the building, and uh, it looked like it was going to get violent. In the end, the city council caved, and we thought the vote was going to be 5-2, to two, and it was, but it was 5-2 to two against this instead of 5-2 to two in favor. Surprisingly, just like the Falwell Convention served as the catalyst for the organization of Columbus's gay activists, the crushing defeat of the city ordinance and city council had a similar fortuitous silver lining. That though we lost that, it turned out in the long run to be good for us because now both not just the gay community, but the straight community was outraged at how badly we were treated. With a flood of media attention, new members, and an overflowing of financial support after the ordinance, Stonewall had finally found a permanent foundation within the Columbus community, and as luck and political gamesmanship would have it, Stonewall found an ally in the newly appointed Mayor Greg Lasheka. And now, with new blood in office, Stonewall will give the Employment Protection Ordinance a second push. The gay community came to him and said, we want to put it through city council, and he said, I don't want to have another one of those circuses in city hall. Mayor Lasheka had an idea on how to pass the ordinance without attracting the circus that he wanted to avoid as a newly elected mayor. His idea was to hide the Employment Protection Ordinance inside of a routine rewriting of the city civil rights code that was apparently in need of reorganization anyways. So when the vote came up for this non-newsworthy reorganization of the civil rights code, 
It passed easily, and more importantly, it did not attract any attention. This was important because although the ordinance had technically passed, if the opposition of the moral majority had gotten wind of what had happened, they would have had the opportunity to pass a referendum against it. That if the city council passes a resolution or a law or an ordinance, and then it's attacked and you have a referendum and it goes down, you can never reenact it again. This waiting period was for 60 days. 60 days that Whaley and the others involved had to keep this completely quiet. Not a word to anyone. Their secret knowledge would be put to the test because Stonewall's annual gay pride parade in June happened to fall within this 60-day waiting period. And so we knew that we had just passed the ordinance and we couldn't say a word and we had to tell everyone who spoke, don't say a word. No one's to mention that we just passed the ordinance. The parade ended, and a few weeks later when the waiting period had passed, then the gay community let loose and celebrated their major achievement for workplace protections for the gay community. This time though, there wasn't much protest to it actually passing. And as the 1980s came to a close, it seemed the pendulum had swung in favor of Stonewall's vision for Columbus of equal protections and public acceptance. Over the next decade, Stonewall would see its parade attendance grow leaps and bounds each year. They would establish an office on High Street in the heart of the city in its short North District, and they benefited from broad support from many elected government officials throughout these years. And this brings me back to my initial question that I had wondered back when I lived in Columbus. How does something like a marginalized gay community become accepted and embraced within a city like Columbus? With any change in social norms like this, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how this takes place, but with that said, there are a few key possible factors that stand out and can be separated into two questions that we will seek to answer. The first is how the gay community was able to promote the change they desired. And the second is what made Columbus a conducive city for this kind of rapid social transformation to take place. For Whaley, if Columbus's gay community was going to win the battle for public acceptance, there was a first step that had to be taken, a crucial step. That step was coming out. Coming out, coming out, coming out. And this act of making yourself known to your community, it has a way of breaking the taboo of the other. This is where members of a community fear who they don't know and what they don't understand. But just coming out is not enough. Because in the early 80s, the gay community primarily lived in isolated gay ghettos where they would be left alone by the larger community. But then the gays' mindset of where to live it changed. And then what started happening was, gays didn't like the idea that they had to live in ghettos. So many left their safe, isolated community in German village and they spread and spread and spread. This wasn't a migration that happened in one year, but rather slowly over a decade to the point where all of a sudden gays are populating Dublin. They're in Clintonville. And they're in Upper Arlington, they're in Worthington, they're in Bexley, they're in Reynoldsburg. I mean, they're they're in all the parts of the city, and that sort of thing then builds on itself. When everybody has gay neighbors, it just stops being that big a deal. By coming out, the gay community created an awareness to their existence. But then by spreading into all areas of the city, they became known to many who may have never personally known a gay person in their town before. 
and as gays became known, the fears that the straight community had had of social upheaval began to fade as, well, nothing happened. What the straights learned was that gays were really just like everyone else and that the gay agenda was to buy milk and take care of the kids and get the car fixed and, you know, earn a decent living. This also proved politically useful to the progress of gay rights in Columbus, as over time, politicians in these areas became aware that they had gay constituents. But due to the simple fact that there just aren't that many gays in any given community, the importance of the straight community's support for gay causes cannot be overemphasized. Because all the studies show that at absolute maximum, gays are 10% of the population. Well, 10% of the population cannot work a change like that. Straights have to help. And that's exactly what happened. Now to the second possible reason is Columbus itself. How is Columbus conducive as a city and culture to aid in this rapid transformation? And the first interesting follow-up question to this is why out of Ohio's three biggest cities, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland, did Columbus develop so much faster and become a much more gay-friendly city than either Cincinnati or Cleveland? Well, there's a few possible reasons. First of all, Cleveland's hard to get to. It's up at the top of the state. It's, uh, it's very liberal, but it's cold. Uh, it's not the most welcoming environment, and the city itself is on a downward trend. Cincinnati has similar problems. It's much warmer, but it's a lot more conservative. So if it was going to happen, Columbus was the city in the state. And what Columbus had that Cincinnati or Cleveland didn't have is the state capital, one of the largest universities in the world in Ohio State, which ensures a steady stream of generally progressive young people. And Columbus is not landlocked, so it continues to grow and expand while Cincinnati has the forest border of the Ohio River and Cleveland has Lake Erie. Columbus is this unknown secret wonder city that people don't appreciate because it, it's not flashy in any way. But what it lacks in flash, it makes up for in growth, something that has been hard to come by in Ohio over the past two decades. Unlike every other city in the, the state is growing, it's still growing, it's got a great economic climate, it's got great business, it's known for its restaurants, it's known for its arts, and so forth. Columbus is on the uprise, so it, its gay community is too. Fast forward to 2001. Stonewall is celebrating its 20th anniversary as an organization and decided to invite Whaley and the other original founders of Stonewall to ride on Cadillac convertibles through the middle of the parade. And for Whaley, this was the moment that the full arc of Columbus's transformation hit him. That's when it suddenly hit me that we had gone over the top. The city was festooned with gay rights banners and advertising that the mayor was going to speak at the breakfast the brunch the next day. And I thought, wait a minute, in the beginning, when I first moved here, the mayor called us homos. I, we had a congressman, Congress uh, Chambers Wiley, who told the national press he didn't have any gay constituents, even though his district included German Village and the campus. And um, you, we had no protections at all. And I looked around, and here is the city celebrating gay pride, as they do now routinely. And the mayors and all the politicians come to Stonewall Columbus and, and pitch for, for gay votes. And I thought, wait a minute. We were fighting the battle for public acceptance. That was the first battle. And by golly, we won that one. I want to go back to the 1984 city council battle because there is this unbelievably perfect quote from one of the opposing pastors where he says something to the effect of, who in the world wants Columbus to be the gay capital of the Midwest? Actually, I'm just going to play it back again for you because it's so good. Who in the world 
Columbus to be known as the gay capital of the Midwest. And we'll skip ahead to the second part. We believe if this issue passed, homosexuals from surrounding states will flood Columbus. And, and he turned out to be prophetic. This turned out to be true. It got to be a reputation of the city in Ohio that was safe to go to. Such a rapid change in only two decades. And for Whaley being of the age to have seen this transformation from start to finish, his recollections ring true in a very personal way. We were faggots, and we were dykes, and we were lesbos. The law said that we were criminals, uh, the medicine said that, that we were sick, and the minister said we were sinners. Homosexuality is just not a big deal anymore. And I've got a husband, and it never occurred to me I'd have a husband. It wasn't even a battle what we were planning on fighting back in the 80s. So I am very, very proud and amazed uh, at what has happened. And uh, Columbus was the right place, the right time, the right people. Special thanks to Douglas Whaley, Stonewall Columbus, Craig Covey, Casey Gouch for editorial help, blah blah for the music, and yours truly. I'm David Gouch, and you've been listening to Sense of Place. Stories about the physical space around us, how we shape it, and how it shapes us. If you are enjoying this first season of Sense of Place, we would love for others to discover us too. You can help by telling your friends, but also go to the Sense of Place on iTunes and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. And as always, we know there are so many incredible stories about the relationship we humans have with the physical space around us. So if you know of a great story that our staff should look into, shoot us an email at storytip at senseofplace.audio. It means to me that Columbus was the all-American town. Mom, apple pie!